0: Well, today we're going to get into Proverbs chapter 25, and again, you know, we're going to, again, find this chapter just loaded with great truth for for all of us, Uh, great principles that, uh, you know, will give us the answers to all of the things that we we struggle in life with. You know, uh, somebody said a long time ago, and it was kind of in jest, but it's so true, in every life a little rain must fall. And uh, we all go through issues, we all go through struggles, we all go through times uh, that are not pleasant. And that's really the importance of a a good church in your life. Uh, People there that love you, that will help you no matter what you go through, that will be there for you and help you walk through it. But even at that, the only thing that really makes it work is the people who take the principles of the Word of God and apply them into your life. Uh, And Proverbs has been a great book on the issues of life, and I think as we enter into uh, chapter 25, you're going to see it again. I'm excited about opening up 25. I saw some things here this week that uh, I have never seen before and just had a great time just putting it all together. So um, I'm going to get the blessing out of it, too. I don't know if it's right to get blessed by your own preaching, but I'm going to give it a shot. (laughs) Proverbs chapter 25. These are also Proverbs of Solomon which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied out. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. The heaven for height, the earth for depth, and the heart of kings is unsearchable. Take away the dross from the silver, and there shall come forth a vessel for the finer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you for all that you do for us. Thank you for... Uh, these great folks, and for uh, the great weekend that we have had uh, so far, and uh, Lord, uh, looking forward to today and then restart uh, the mission tonight, and just all the good things that you provided for us that we might give back just a little bit to you of what you've done for us. We ask now your blessings upon this time today, and we look for you to give us all those things that we need. In Jesus' name, is sake we ask it, amen. Now, verse 1 says, These are also Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, uh, copied out. You know, it's always been amazing to me. One of the things that, to me, makes the Bible stand out as the most special book on the planet is that we know that you don't have everything that God uh, said. I'm sure Paul wrote more letters than what we have accounted. I'm sure that uh, uh, many of the prophets wrote other things that never got into a Bible, Uh, In fact, the Bible says over there in John, it says, if all the things that Jesus did were written in a book, then the world itself couldn't contain it all. When I read that, it really, it impacted me because it told me then that what I have in my Bible is exactly what God handpicked out of everything that he said and he did that he wanted to give to me. Proverbs is the same way. He says he wrote 3,000 proverbs. You don't have 3,000 proverbs. You have the ones that he's given you in the book of Proverbs, but there was many, many more than that. And when I saw that, I realized that that just made the book of Proverbs even more special to me—how important it was. It says in First Kings chapter four, verse thirty-two, that he he had three thousand proverbs. Yet you just got a small amount of those, and it, to me, it shows how condensed God made the Bible that he can keep, he can take. All the things that Solomon did, just handpick what he wants, but he can keep revealing truth till he gets all of them done in the ones that he gave us. It's incredible. And then I looked at Hezekiah. You know, Hezekiah lived some 300 plus years after Solomon died. I mean, Solomon's on the throne around 1000 BC. Hezekiah's down there, you know, uh, uh, many, many years after that, around 700 BC. And it's some 300 years after Solomon wrote all of this, and it shows how important it, even as the passing of time, that the kings of Israel saw the value in what the wisest man that ever lived had written. And you know, Solomon, without a doubt, uh, will be one of the most incredible men in all of the Old Testament. Uh, He's one of the most unique characters in the Bible. Most people never discover the uniqueness. Most people never see the value of it. But boy, I'll tell you what, when you put your Bible together or begin to put your Bible together, uh, you've, got some, you've got some great stuff. The Bible says he's the wisest man that ever lived. When you go back to 1 Kings chapter 3 and 1 Kings chapter 4, when he gets his throne established, the whole world is coming to see him. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 34 says, all the kings of the earth came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. You don't get that in school today. If you took an ancient religion course or an ancient history course in college or wherever, you you never get that. You'd hear about all of the Gentile nations and how great they were. But they would brush by or pass over or hardly even mention anything about the nation of Israel. Let me tell you something, and you can put this down. When Solomon is on the throne around 1000 BC during his reign... He is the wisest man on the planet, and every other nation, every other king on this world looked to wisdom of Solomon and the building that God had built in Jerusalem. It's incredible. Now, in your Bible, you have five wisdom books. They're called the five wisdom books because they're kind of put together in a grouping, and they, they contain uh, uh, great wisdom. You have Job. You have the book of Psalms. You have the book of Proverbs, you have the book of Ecclesiastes, and you have the book of Song of Solomon. Now, Solomon will write three of the five. He also writes some of the Psalms, and he writes as complete books three of the five wisdom books, and each one of those forms an incredible insight and wisdom uh, that is unbelievable about God. His three books uh, are really, really important just to look at them uh, and see his wisdom, First of all, Proverbs. When he wrote Proverbs, he shows us how God thinks and how God looks at things and what the desire of God's heart really is. And when we look at that for our own selves, we know that God's heart is for the nation of Israel. We know that God, uh, his His wisdom, uh, I talk to you all the time about looking and seeing and understanding things the way that God does. So when he wrote the book of Proverbs, he gave us, a book that has God's opinion and perspective about everything in life. Then he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. When he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, in that book, he shows us how the world thinks. He shows us how the world looks at things. He shows us that the greatest... Kingdom the world will ever see was the kingdom, a, a theocratic kingdom that God set up that he's going to establish someday, and he'll show us through the book of Ecclesiastes that unsaved man will spend his whole life trying to build a better kingdom than God's kingdom. And at the end of the book, he tells us that everything in the world that goes up against God is vanity. Then he wrote the book of Song of Solomon. Where Proverbs shows you what God thinks, where Ecclesiastes shows you what the world thinks, Song of Solomon shows you what Christ thinks. Where the book of Proverbs shows you that the number one thing on God's heart is the nation of Israel, Song of Solomon shows you the number one thing on Christ's heart is you and me and our relationship with him. And I'm telling you, that's only all you need. I mean, you got a whole other uh, Bible out there with 60-some more books in it, but I'm telling you, fundamentally, if you know what God thinks and what God's opinion is, and you make it yours, if you know how the world system works and you get it, and you know what Christ is to you and that He sees you, what more do you need? You can see the value of these books being wisdom books. They spill over. This wisdom spills over into everything else in the Bible. And the complete wisdom format in these three books uh, will fill a lifetime, 10 lifetimes of study. And uh, it, it, it's quite incredible. Uh, you know, and, but just to keep it all honest, and uh, my job is to preach the whole counsel of God. You have five wisdom books in the Old Testament. You have five wisdom books in the New Testament because God's complete in everything that he does. These five books were all written by one man. You have the Gospel of John, you have 1 John, you have 2 John, you have 3 John, and you have the book of Revelations. And when you look at those books, you'll see how they compare with the five wisdom books in the Old Testament, the Gospel of John. You know what the Gospel of John's about? It shows you the insight of God's Son in every detail and how to have a relationship. That would be the book of Psalms. In 1 John, you know what the theme of 1 John is? It's knowing God. That would be Song of Solomon. In 2 John, it's about truth and the mind of the Spirit. That would be the book of Ecclesiastes. In 3 John, you find a wise man and a foolish man. There's the book of Proverbs. And the book of Revelation is about the suffering and the tribulation. There's the book of Job. It's an incredible layout. Now, I'm going to show you this, and I want you to think about this. Solomon is the most unique man in the Old Testament. John is the most unique man in the New Testament. I'm going to show you this morning why Solomon is the most unique man in the Old Testament. I want you to figure out, and we'll talk about it Thursday night, I want you to figure out why John is the most unique guy. and yeah, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Now, without a doubt, Solomon will be, as I said, the most unique man in all uh, of the Bible in one sense during his 40 year reign he only reigned for 40 years during his 40 year reign it will be the only time in the history of the world during his 40 year reign it will be the only time that the nation of israel gets everything and the kingdom of heaven is established they have all the land they have all the enemies are conquered there's no more wars there's no more battles there's no more fighting that 40 years is the most unique 40 years anywhere in the history of man. It's when the nation of Israel was at the top of the apex, and she was reigning and, and over all of the land grant that God had promised to Abraham. And it's an incredible period of time, but it only lasted for 40 years. During that 40 years, all the nations of the world came to see the house of God that came to see God's building, God's temple in Jerusalem. They wanted to see where God lives. And I've told you many, many times the great parallel between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God had a literal city, and they built a literal temple. And all the world in those 40 years came to see God's glory and wisdom through Solomon in Jerusalem in that temple. And now we're in the New Testament. And we know now the Bible says that God doesn't dwell in temples and buildings made with hands. The Bible says what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Where in the Old Testament, here it comes, where in the Old Testament the whole world came to a literal temple, in the New Testament there is no literal temple. You're the spiritual house of God. And in the Old Testament, the whole world came to see the temple. In the New Testament, we take our temple to the world. That's how it works. That's incredible when you understand that concept. This makes Solomon's time, that 40 years, a perfect type of the millennial reign of Christ. And boy, it really does. Solomon and his reign, as most of their characters in the Bible, Uh, there can be many times, can be many types. But here's how it works. You have Saul, David, and Solomon. Let me show you how it plays out. Saul was the first king. He was the wrong king. So he's a type of the Antichrist, one of the types of the Antichrist in the Bible. After Saul shows up, the Antichrist, David shows up. David is a type of Christ at the second coming of Christ, and David wipes out all the rest of the enemies that were there in Israel's land. After David, who's a type of the second coming, Solomon shows up, who's a type of the millennium, and he have rest for 40 years. Saul reigned for 40 years. David reigned for 40 years. Solomon reigned for 40 years. And Solomon and a study of him is quite incredible. But there's something else here. He's also a type of something else that we want to look at today. And let me just say about this, because maybe many of you, some of you listening on YouTube today, and welcome, and maybe some of you even here. In the Bible, you have what we call types. Types or pictures of things, and uh, I, I, I've told you before how the Bible is a is a picture book. It's a story book. When you went and got a uh, you know wanted to teach your child the Bible, you didn't go get you know a, you know a, a systematic theology someplace. You started with one of those big books with big print where you're told a story about Adam and Eve, and then you turn a page and there was a picture of Adam and Eve. You read about Noah and the flood, and you turned a picture, and there's a picture of the ark with the rain coming down. The picture for a child illustrated what he was writing in the story. And that's the way the Bible is. Don't ever get so educated in your mind when it comes to the Word of God that you ever forget that you're still a little child. And that's the way God will deal with you. So he wrote you a book that you read a story, but within that story, he put pictures. And the pictures illustrate the stories. Now, you start basically by learning the basic ones, and then you work up from there. They can get as complicated as you want them to be because the Bible's filled with them. But we kind of walk you through it and help you get that. But in the Bible, we have types. Somebody said one time that the Old Testament's like an art gallery that has pictures hanging on the wall. But the art gallery, the power's off, and it's complete darkness. So you walk down the hall... And you're in the Old Testament, but you can't see anything because it's dark. But then if somebody gave you a flashlight, you turn the flashlight on, and now you can see the pictures on the wall and make sense of where you're at in the art gallery. That's exactly it is with the Bible. We look through a glass darkly. But when God in the Old Testament, God gives you the pictures, the types of the flashlight that illuminates the pictures that shows you what you got. It's just that simple. It's not complicated. Not complicated at all. And, uh, you know, there's types through everything. You know, you, we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we talk about the crucifixion of Christ, and we see all of that, you know, and uh, we, we hear it all the time, and people preach it all the time. But you know the greatest complete picture of the crucifixion of Christ and what it did and, and all, the, all that it happened when it took place isn't found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? You know it's found in Exodus chapter 12? Exodus chapter 12 was one of the greatest types, it's one of the greatest pictures of what Christ did on the cross when those Jews came out of the promised land, or uh, out of Egypt into the promised land at the Passover. They had to have a lamb, and that lamb had to be a male lamb, without spot, without any blemish, just like Christ. And every family had to take a lamb and kill that lamb, an innocent lamb, and take the blood and then put it on the side post of the door and put it on the top of the door. One, two, three. Whoever told them to do that, whoever wrote that, looked ahead and knew there was going to be three crosses on Calvary. And he says, when I pass over Egypt, And I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Well, in our hymnal right there, we got a song, When I see the blood, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass, I will pass over you. And when God's judgment comes, it's going to be the blood that you put on the door of your family, over your temple, that God sees, and God's judgment passes over you. It's incredible pictures. He says down there, he says down there uh, in the first couple of verses, he says that every man is to take... Take a lamb. And the next verse says, He says, the lamb, and then He says, your lamb in verse 3. And you look at that and you think to yourself, now that, who would have ever thought about that, that when the Holy Spirit wrote the gospel according to Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, about a lamb, the first thing He'd say was, You need a lamb. And then you need the lamb. Because the first thing that everybody in this room needs and everybody in the world, you need a lamb. But not every lamb will do. You need the lamb. But you can have the lamb and know all about the lamb. But until you make it your lamb, you ain't going nowhere. That's in Exodus chapter 12. I mean, right there. Why, he told them in chapter 1, after that point, that they started the beginning of their year with the Feast of Tabernacles, September 22nd, 23rd. But when this happens and the Passover takes place, he says, we're changing all that. You're no longer going to keep the beginning of your year the old way. Now you're going to keep it in the Passover. And somebody said, what was that all about? That's simply this. When you became in Christ, you became a new creature in Christ Jesus. All things are passed away. All things become new. All the way back in Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, types, pictures, pictures that illustrate in the Old Testament, stories that illustrate great New Testament truths, and you can, the art of the Bible is putting them together. And so, in the Bible, you'll have 18 types of Antichrist. We all know who the Antichrist is. He's the coming man of sin. And, you know, everybody thinks they knew who he is. Some thinks it's Bill Clinton. Some thinks it's Hillary Clinton. Some thinks it's Trump. Some thinks it's whoever. There's none of those. Uh, but the, the bottom line is that in the Bible, in the Old Testament, you have 18 men, 18, who foreshadow the Antichrist. Now, when you study their lives, you get a composite of what he's like. Somebody said, why 18? Because his number is 666. Six times three is 18. Now in the Bible, along in the Old Testament, you have 21 types of Christ. They'll run from Adam to Hezekiah, where the, uh, the Antichrist run from Cain up to Herod. You'll find 21 men who, in things that they do, in situations that they find themselves, they will foreshadow the Lord Jesus Christ. David is a, is a type of Christ. Joseph is the greatest type of Christ. He's a type of Christ in over 152 different places. Those are pictures. Those are types. They, they illustrate stuff to us. Now, with Solomon, we have something going on here, and I'll give you why Solomon is the most unique man uh, in all of the Old Testament, if not all the Bible. You figure out John, and we'll talk about that Thursday night. Now, Solomon is the only man in the Bible who is not only a type of Christ, he's also a type of Antichrist. He's the only man in the Bible that's both types. When you look at 1 Kings chapter 10 or 2 Chronicles chapter 9, they're the same chapter, just two different books, same story. You'll find that when you come through there, when you read from verse 1 up to verse 13, Solomon is a type of Christ in every way, shape, or form. Then when you get to verse 14, it says this, and the weight of Sodom's gold in verse 14 was 666. And from that point on, he's a type of the antichrist. You'll find 666 three times in your Bible, four if you count the two places that are the same here. You'll find it in 1 Kings 10 and 2 Chronicles 9, same story, uh, that you'll find 666 there. You'll find it in Ezra chapter 2, verse 13 where it says 666, right smack dab in the middle of that chapter that is the most boring chapter in the Bible to most people. Then you find that again in Revelation chapter 13, verse 18. Now, the real question is, for those who really want to learn the Bible, why did he do that? I'll tell you this much. They all connect together, and each one of them shows you an absolutely invaluable piece of information about the coming man of sin. Most people just read through those things. They never see it. They blow right through Sodom and the gold 666. Wait, oh, what's the big deal? They get over there in Ezra chapter 2, verse 13, and they see 666. They say, oh, you know, what's the big deal? And they get into Revelation chapter 13, and now it's a big deal because that's the premier chapter on the mark of the beast. And you just missed two of the greatest ones in the Old Testament that Revelation 13 don't even, it pales in comparison to the information you get out of the other two. But that's the way it works. Now, God does these things. He made Solomon a type of the Antichrist and a type of Christ, the only man in the Bible to show us what a complete imitation the Antichrist is going to be And what a complete fake he's going to be when he shows up. It's so unbelievable that most people can't figure it out. Book of Revelation, you have two white horse riders. You have a white horse rider in Revelation chapter 6. And you have a white horse rider in Revelation chapter 19. The white horse rider in Revelation chapter 6 is the Antichrist. In the book of Revelation, in the first three chapters, you have the church age, chapter 4, the rapture of the church takes place, and in chapter 5 and 6, here he comes, the man of sin. And when he comes in six one, he shows up on a white horse. When Jesus Christ comes back in Revelation chapter 19 at the second coming of Christ, he comes on a white horse. Every Protestant seminary, every Catholic seminary, every Baptist seminary, every seminary Bible college on this planet will teach you that the white horse rider in Revelation chapter 6 is Christ. It's not Christ. It's the Antichrist. You take the rider in 6 and the rider in 19 and compare them side by side, there is no match to them. But it shows you how good he is going to be when he comes. Well, he's got the theologians fooled right now. He's got half the Baptist preachers in this city fooled, half of them, 90% of them, them 99.99999%. There's a guy out there that he always gives me flack because I always say everything's 99.99999%. So I was going to stop it, and then I said, no, I just like irritating that guy. So it's ninety nine point nine 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 percent bravely spoken behind your computer keyboard. It's an incredible study. And even, the, even Christians can't figure it out. So God put us a type in there that shows us that the Antichrist is going to be so close to the real Christ. There's only one way you can tell them apart. And the Bible says that that's a very easy process if you want to get into the Bible and figure it out. And, uh, you know, that great truth is completely lost today by many uh, modern-day scholars, the pastors, the uh, you know, the those who are in the apostate Alexandrian cult crowd, the neo-crowd, you know. Uh, through their arrogance of their education, they will reject the truth that God has given us and uh f- foolishly think that the answers to the bible are found in the greek and the hebrew ridiculous now also in verse 1 we see how the other kings looked at solomon's writings and how important that they were bible says in verse 1 that the men of hezekiah are copying out of his proverbs the wise one look, the wise kings looked uh, to his wisdom for guidance now, I want to just stop here for a moment, and I want to talk to you about Hezekiah, who is in verse 1. Uh, Hezekiah is, a, is one of the last of the good kings. In fact, he is the last good king. He tries to bring the nation of Israel back to God. And boy, there are some great, great, great parallels here. If you want to study his reign, it's in 2 Chronicles chapter uh, 29, uh, picking up in verse 32, or 2 Kings chapter 18 and 20, i excuse me, 29 and 32, it runs all the way through those chapters, and 2 Kings chapter 18, 19, and 20. And he is a good king uh, in a line of terrible kings. And when he came to the throne, he realized and saw the condition of God's people. Second Kings 18, 3 says about Hezekiah, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that David his father did. It's an amazing thing when you start going through these kings of Israel. Every one of them, good or bad, are compared to the gold standard of God's king, and that is David. Every time you read it, it goes back to David, David, David. Verse 5 says, He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, and there was no more like him after him. It's over. And he was the last guy. And the Bible talks about the fact that he took away all of the Baal worshipers. He got rid of everything that was defiling there. Uh, the time frame here is about 700 A.D., some three or four hundred years after Solomon dies. are uh, right at the point where they're getting ready to go into the Assyrian captivity. Sennacherib is going to come down and destroy them and, and take them back to Assyria. And he tries, what a great lesson, he tries to bring a nation that has spent at least three or four or five hundred years throwing away everything that God gave them, rejecting every piece of truth that God gave them, and now, right before the end, here's a good king, a great king, who tries to bring that nation back to God, and it's too little, too late. What a great picture that is for us in America. I'm telling you, we talk about uh, the uh, president won the election on the great theme, uh, let's make America great again. And everybody wanted America to be great again. Everybody believed that he could do it. And I believe he can do some great things. But let me tell you something. You can't ever make America great again when you don't even understand what made America great in the first place. It was the book that you got in your lap. And until this country gets back to that book, it ain't ever going to be great. It might be great because you got two chickens in every pot and three cars in your garage. It may be great because you just bought your big 100-foot motorboat. It might be great because you travel all around the world and you got a nice thing and all that stuff. That's fine. That's not what God calls greatness. Amen. Amen. Hezekiah tried to do it. He couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. And Hezekiah, what a great lesson. He, he sees God's coming judgment, and he tries to turn the corner and get that nation back to God. But it's just too late. But he did know. Got to give him credit for this, even though he couldn't do it. He knew the only way to do it was getting back to the book, so he has his boys copying out of the book of Proverbs. He knew where to go. Verse 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Now, doctrinally, um, this is pretty easy. We know that there's some things in the Bible that God he didn't he didn't reveal there's some things in the book of daniel that he told daniel don't write that down i want to shut that up i don't want to give anybody that right now he said the same thing in john in the book of revelation he says seal up those things and don't let it be known we already know that he wrote 3000 proverbs he obviously didn't want to give us all of those so he he he, he concealed some things now historically This is exactly what Hezekiah is doing. Hezekiah knows that he's in deep deep trouble with his nation. And he knows that God has hid some things from this nation because of their unbelief. But he knows where to go. He starts with the book of Proverbs. He starts by having his scribes copy out of the Proverbs, Solomon's book, the wisdom that he needs to follow. And then it's, inspirationally, it's for you and me. And this is real easy. When it comes to you learning the Bible, God fixed it so you'd have to study it. God didn't write a book so you could grasp it every time you can. Years ago, we had a, a guy that used to came to our church that, you know, uh, he, he got. we were in Romans at that point in time. And uh, he got mad because we had spent too much time in the book of Romans. He, he had some other problems too, obviously. I'm just trying to be kind. We have spent too much time in the Book of Romans. And he put on his little Facebook face page or in your face or whatever he was writing on back then, you know, that I'm leaving or this and that. Bob just spent too much time. He has spent too much time in the Book of Romans. Now, I don't know how much time I spent in the Book of Romans. I have spent a lot of time in the Book of Romans. You can look it up. It's still there. Probably, I don't know, four or five years, maybe three or four years. I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this. I have people say it about Proverbs. You know, well, you you just spend too long in the book of Proverbs. Well, let me ask you a question. Proverbs is the mind of God. How quickly do you want to go through God's mind? I mean, make a statement like that. You ought to have a sign that says, look how stupid I am when it comes to the Bible. The book that is God's mind and you want to hurry through it? I get it. I get it. I get it. But anyway, I'm going to tell you something. I don't know how long we'll be in Proverbs. I don't know how long we've been in it. But I can tell you this. Let's say we took 10 years to go through Proverbs. We won't. I know some of you went, oh, we won't. But I am going to tell you this. If we did take 10 years to go through it, we could take a break and I'd preach a couple of little, nice little neo-evangelical sermons to you about loving your neighbor, kumbaya, and that, that's my favorite. And then I could come back and say, I'm going to do Proverbs again. I could take another 10 years, go through the same book and find more stuff that I never saw beginning before. You know why? Because God keeps revealing out of the book, it doesn't matter how many times you read it. This is why it's an honor and a glory for kings to search it out. We, we we want everything now. Everything. I, when I was in Ohio, I remember when they when McDonald's first McDonald's started, and we went there to eat. Hamburgers were 15 cents. On the shine, right now you drive down McDonald, a hundred billion sold. When I went, it was 20. 20 hamburgers sold. And, and I remember, I remember, we went in there, you know, and we, we, we had cheap little hamburgers. They didn't have Big Macs back then. They had, they had hamburgers and french fries. And you'd go in there, you know, and it was, it made, it revolutionized everything. It was now called fast food. And people who didn't want to cook dinner, and moms didn't want to work, during, didn't want to, I get it, they went to the fast food place. And then, you know, that fast food wasn't fast enough, so they put a drive-in through it so you could get your fast food faster. And then that wasn't fast enough, then they put an Uber driver out there so that'll get your fast food twice as fast as the drive through fast, because the drive throughs not fast anymore, I'm telling you. Because everybody wants to go there because they want to get it fast. So just call the Uber driver, tell him to meet you at the park someplace and get your hamburger, whatever you want. Because we don't want to wait for nothing. We want it Now. We want it right now. I look at you guys when, when I was a kid growing up. When I used to hate going back to school because you have to get blue jeans that are blue and stiff, you know. And their new they're, they're jeans are the worst jeans in the world. You have to wash them about a thousand times to get them where they got that fit feel, you know. Now you don't have to. We used to like them when we wore them for five or six years and the knees went out. You can go buy them now with knees out. I see some of you people walking around with holy jeans on. I'm thinking, you know what? Come on over here. We'll go to the clothes closet and we'll get you some jeans. Yeah, I'm talking about that. Like those shoes, though. Play a game of checkers on them later. I get it. I got holy jeans. I do. You gave me a pair, didn't you? I wear them. I wear them. I take the dogs out. I wear them. I'm not fighting anything. I think they look good. Jamie wears them all the time. You all wear them. Sometimes Jamie, I'm thinking to myself, does she got any jeans left? I mean, it ripped up the legs all the way up. I mean, but it's okay. That's the style. I mean, hey, she's got the legs for it. If I put those on, you'd be laughing your head off after those things. But I'm just telling you, that's what we are. You know why? We can't wait for it anymore. We're all that way. you walk into, I mean, the biggest decision, you think it's tough going in to a Bible bookstore and they say, I want a Bible, which one do you want? And you got 500 pair over here. Try go buy makeup. You got a thousand different shades. You have to customize your lips just the color you want. They got peach blush, bloom blush, rock blush, dirt blush. They got all that stuff. And then you're going to go buy some jeans. 504s, 512s, 515s, 516, 501s, 503. Man, what do all those numbers mean? I want a pair of jeans that when I put them on, make me look like a man. That's what I want. I don't need these numbers. But that's the way we are. We're in a hurry with everything. And that's what we want. When I bought, and, and this is not a criticism, this is the world that we live in. You know what? When I got my first car, I got a 1958 Ford. What'd you get, Bob? Volkswagen. A Volkswagen. You imagine Bob in a Volkswagen? Now, well, that's got to be a picture. Whoa, man. And, I, you know, I, and I'll tell you, I just, I, I drove that 58 Ford. It looked like a big boat. I mean, it did, if you know what a 58 Ford looks like. And I'm telling you, it's a place where if I had, a, had my daughters, when they grew up, if I had a bought them a 58 Ford, you'd never heard the end of it. I remember when I took Kelly to buy her first car. I bought her a stick shift. Remember that little Escort I bought you? You do. You didn't like it. I know you didn't. And I bought a stick shift because I think every woman needs to know how to drive a stick shift. Yeah. I think some of you guys need to have a stick shift class on the side out in the parking lot. Make sure there's no other cars around because we don't want them killing anybody. But I think that's good. Hey, girls, you never know when you need to get a getaway. And you don't have to wait and pick an automatic. You want to jump in the first thing that goes and get out of town, man. That's what you want to do. So I bought her one. I, and so I said, okay. I said, you drive it around, took her out, showed her how to, you know, you got to get the balance between the clutch. And the scary thing is when you're on a hill. See? Because you got to be fast enough and coordinated enough to let the clutch out and put the gas on so you don't roll back and hit the person in front of you. So I drove her around, did everything. This is a true story, isn't it? And she's down there, so I said, "In our car, shock, which goes up the hill, and I said, drive it around and just get used to it." So I'm in there, and Greg McClintock was there, staying with us. That, that and so Greg and I are talking. Pretty soon, I see this little sweet thing running down the street <laughs> toward the house. And I, I'm thinking, you know, somebody without her car. By the way, <laughs> I'm thinking somebody stole her car, hijacked the car. And so I. I I, I, she comes in the house and I said, Honey, what's the matter? She's crying, you know. And she, what she does, she tried to go up the hill and then she stalled it. And starting it on a hill is really tough. Because you got to do it. A, a man, I mean, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, you guys that went along the road, I've always wanted to see uh, some woman along the road with four or five kids, whose car dead, pull up behind her and say, well, What's wrong? It won't start look under the hood and say, you got a screwdriver? I love this. Put that screwdriver down. Try it now. It starts right up. I've never figured that out. I tried it one time, burnt the screwdriver right in half, burnt my hand. But I'll tell you what I can do. Oh, I'm good. Popping the clutch. See, you stall it on the hill. You're a real man. You don't panic. You say, there's a car behind you. All I need is six inches to pop that clutch push that clutch in, put at that thing, boy, let that rope back, pop that clutch, and it sh- jump starts and it goes. You see, that's what a real man does. She parked in the middle of the road, turned it off, ran back home. <laughs> you can want everything fast in life, whether it's your food, whether it's your genes, whatever you want. But I'll tell you one thing, it'll never work when it comes to that Bible. You've got to get in that book. You've got to invest the rest of your life in it. You've got to search it out like the gold mine that it is. And we got these ideas today that these young Christians and these preachers, they're just going to grab the Bible right now. In your worst nightmare, you won't. You've got to labor to get it. God fixed it that way. And, you know, and when you do, God's going to open up the Scriptures for you. He's going to give them to you. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever. He he gives those things to you, and then you pass them on to your family. Now, hey, learning the Bible is just one fundamental basic concept. It's very simple, it's very easy, and it's a very basic procedure. If the Bible is God's mind, and 1 Corinthians 2, 16 and Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says that it is. If the Bible is God's mind, then the deeper you search into that mind, the more you get into his mind, the more his mind will get into you. It's not about just knowing about the Bible. I've met guys all my life who, who when it came to the, they wanted to spend their whole life studying the great doctrines of the Bible. They knew about the Antichrist, they knew about this, they knew about that, but they absolutely had no personal one-on-one love relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why somebody will spend all of their time in the deep stuff and never try to get into the basic fundamental stuff? I mean, knowing the Bible is one thing. Knowing the author of the Bible is something else. You know why they'll do that? Because with doctrine, with a great tribulation, with the Antichrist, with all of the things, there's no accountability there. You want accountability? You get into a personal relationship with him. You make yourself accountable to him. You get into that mind. It's not just about knowing things about the Bible, but that a relationship with Christ, through Christ, and in the deepest sense of getting his mind. This is called getting God's understanding. It's called the knowledge of God in Proverbs 2.5. It's like a gold or a silver or a diamond mine. I remember one time years and years ago when we were in South Africa. They took us on a day off on sightseeing. They took us to a gold mine that had been closed and now it was a tourist attraction. This thing went down five miles You got into the elevator and we started going down. And I mean, it took you 20 minutes in an elevator to get to the bottom level. I'm thinking to myself, you have got to be kidding me. I thought this thing is just a hole in the ground. Yeah, we went down to that thing and hit the bottom. Doors opened up. And boy, there was a shaft going this way and one going this way and one going this way. And the tour guide had, we all had those little helmets on with those little lights on them. And so he takes us down, and he's showing us where they used to dig the gold. And he says, you know what he says? Uh, we are five miles down as we speak. This is, the, oh, this is the deepest gold mine in the world. And he said, let me show you what it's like if you're working down here. Turn all your helmet lights off. Let me show you what it's like down here if you're stuck down here and the power fails. And he sh- it was, you talk about the bottomless pit. I mean, it was dark. Of course, me, my little handy-dandy survival flashlight I'm on my way out of here. But it was dark. He turned the back on it again, and everybody's saying, wow, did they? He he said, let me show you what we do. And all the pipes were up here. And he says, what we've done, no matter where you're at, if the power goes off, get to the pipes, and all of the bolts are facing the way out. And you just follow the pipes. If you're going toward this way, you're going the right way. If you're going toward the head of the pipe, you're going the wrong way. There was a lady there, and I was enthralled. And There was a lady there. It wasn't with our group. And I'm, and I'm just thinking, you know me, I'm thinking of the Bible application. She says, I have a question. And he says, what is it, ma'am? He says, how come you have to come down so deep to find gold? And he, she said, well, first of all, this gold mine's been here for like 30 years before we closed it, maybe 40. And he said, but the truth of the matter is, the deeper you go the more gold and the better quality gold you find. I said, amen. He said, what? I said, nothing. (laughs) I took that tour and I thought to myself, you know what, that Bible's our gold mine. And the deeper you go, the more pure and the better gold you find. And then I got thinking about it, I even put it into a message that night, I preached one night while I was there about the gold mine experience. And I said, you know what, going through that gold mine taught me two things about my Christian life because that Bible says that the mind of God is the Word of God and we're supposed to search out the mind and we're supposed to get into that mind and the closer and the deeper you get into the mind of God, the more better gold you're going to find. But then there's another thing. That, mi- that mind was five miles down. Two things. First of all, the deeper you go, the more and better gold you find. Second of all, the deeper you go, the farther you get away from the outside world. I'm telling you, man. How's your dig going? You know, and the real question is, for everybody, including me, how deep do you want to go? I mean, that's all it is. How deep do you want to go? Look at the last part of verse 2. And it's the honor of kings to search out a matter. In the Old Testament, the king of Israel uh, would go through the Old Testament books to find out uh, how he has to deal with something. David did it all the time. Amos chapter 3, verse 7 says, surely the Lord will do nothing, but he revealeth his secrets unto his servants and the prophets. You know what he says? He says, God himself doesn't come down and do it. He reveals it to his servants and his prophets through the word and they do it. And the Bible says in Revelation 1-6 that it says that you and I are going to reign as priests and kings with the Lord when he comes back. You know, and that's a great picture. The greatest illustration i found in my whole world about that is David. David, I got a message on David from shepherd boy to king. And it's an incredible, incredible study of David's journey. He started out as a shepherd boy, but he wound up as a king. And right now, you and I are to be shepherds. We're to be dealing with people with the Word of God, but someday we're going to reign with Christ as a king. And when I realized that, I looked at it, and I thought to myself, wow, you know what? David was anointed king when he was still a shepherd boy in 1 Samuel chapter 16. But he didn't take the throne as king till till, uh, uh, 2 Samuel 5, verse 4, which is about 20 years later. In other words, he was anointed king when he was a shepherd, But 20 some years later, he became the king of Israel. Right now, God has anointed you as a king, even though you're a shepherd. And when Christ comes back someday, just like David, we're going to reign with him on the throne. Look at verse 3 the heaven for height and the earth for depth. And the heart of a king is unsearchable. Now, what's he saying? The Bible calls the word of God in Ephesians 3, 8 and, and Romans uh, Revelation, uh, Romans eleven thirty three the unsearchable riches. When you get that book, the depth of it in your heart, everything in this life, from top to bottom, from heaven to earth, will be understood, be figured out, and you'll have it all put together because of the revealing of the unsearchable riches that God gives you. The depth of God in our heart. And I ask you again. How deep are you willing to go? How deep are you willing to dig into that gold mine that is God's mind? Ephesians, Ephesians 3, 17 through 19 says, that Christ may dwell in your heart by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, the length, the depth, and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now that's the key, filled with the fullness of God. Somebody said, Well, are not talking about salvation. No, no, you're not filled with the Holy Spirit of God when you get saved. You're indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. If you're saved this morning, you got all the Holy Spirit of God there is. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's asking. The question this morning is not how much do you have of the Holy Spirit of God. The question is how much of the Holy Spirit of God has you. That's the question. One time years ago, D.L. Moody used to have him back every year to preach in a church. He was a famous pastor in Chicago. And they had him back about four or five years, and they had a deacon's meeting to put it together. And uh, uh, some of the deacons didn't like it because he got stepping into their face, you know, with the things in the Bible. And, uh, they, and the pastor said, I want to have D.L. Moody back again next year. One of the deacons said, well, why do we have M. Moody back? Uh, is, the, is, uh, is Moody have a corner on the Holy Spirit of God? pastor said, no, 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 not at all. I think the Holy Spirit of God has the corner on Moody. We're going to have him back. It isn't a question how much of the Holy Spirit do you have. It's how much does he have of you? How deep are you willing to go? You know, most Christians are very one-dimensional. They're saved. They never move out of the one-dimensional mindset of Christianity. They see everything, can't figure it out. Every once in a while, you'll find someone, as Ephesians says here, that are three-dimensional Christians. They have a good understanding and a balance of things. But then he talks about down there, the depth. And the depth is the fourth dimension. I mean, if you look at it, you've got the, he says, uh, what is the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height? There's four things there. The breadth, the length, and the height are the three-dimensionals that we have in life. The fourth dimension, the depth, is the supernatural aspect to it of getting into God's mind. That's where it's at. The depth of God in our hearts will be unsearchable because the unsearchable riches you filled your heart with. It's just that simple. The endless unsearchable riches of our life from God's mind of the Word of God the depth of truth. The deeper you go, the better it gets. You know... I like everybody. I, I I I don't I like hanging out with everybody. I I, I simply do, but I gotta be honest with you. I, I like people that have a depth to them. I mean I know my job is to help people that don't have depth get there and, and I get it. But I, I like and I like preachers that ha- I like preaching that has a depth to it. Uh, you know, you you if you ever want to know where a guy is at, a preacher, uh, just listen to him and then put him on your depth meter. You know, all the football teams got what they call a depth chart. That shows them the depth that they can penetrate into something with the different weapons that they have, uh, people that they have going out there. If you've got five guys that can catch a football, four guys that can run it, you can pick and choose. That's your depth chart, how deep you can get into their world. Uh, you know, and the mark of a really good pastor or a really good preacher will be the depth by what he says. I mean, uh, you know, you got you got guys who are very surface and very milky, you know, and no meat to it. But a good a good preacher, whether he's a pastor or not, a good preacher, in his preaching, will draw off the depth that he has with God's word, and you can see it in his preaching. You know, it's it's just, everybody's got style. It's not about style. I knew a guy one time, and I won't tell you who he is because some of you probably remember him. I used to have him at the Bible conference years ago, and he was a good friend of mine. And I had him because I liked him, and, and he added a, we had four or five preachers, so it didn't really matter. But this guy, when he preached, would keep you in stitches. You would laugh from the time he got up. He even looked funny. And when he got up and preached, he, he must have had, if Solomon had a 3,000 3, proverbs, this guy had 3,000 stories. And they were all hilarious. And we would laugh. It would be one laugh from the beginning to the end. And he would blend it into a message. But I remember sitting there listening to him laughing. I was having the time of my life, but I would listen to the guys that preached before him and after him. And I would think to myself, you know what? All it is is a lot of fun and humor. There's no meat there. There's no depth to it. And I knew this guy. I was friends with him, real good friends with him. When we'd talk, he didn't know nothing about the Bible. But boy, could he move a crowd with laughter. Now, I, I, I can be funny. A lot of times I feign being stupid. To th- so I am funny, so you'll laugh at it. But I'm not really stupid. But I don't want humor to motivate you. I want the Holy Spirit of God through the depth of the Word of God to motivate you. Humor is a valuable thing in preaching. But you've got to know how to use it. You don't just build your whole message on a on a comic routine. Humor is important. I was taught how to use it. There's sometimes that I want to hit you with something that's really going to be hard. And it's going to hurt. And I'm going to nail you and you're not going to like it. So I was taught... Loosen them up a little bit. Say something funny. Say it about yourself. Say it about somebody that you're... Make something funny, and then they're all laughing, and then while they're laughing, nail them. (laughs) That's how you do it. You don't build your whole... I mean, this isn't come to Old Path Baptist Church comedy hour. I mean, it's truth. And this guy, you know, wherever he went in his sermon, it was just one... Funny story after another. I mean, I like guys with depth to it. I like I like to listen to a guy, and we have guys here. You know, I have Bob preach when I'm not. Bob will get Danny will preach to you. John Busquet on Thursday night in Bible study. I mean, we got guys here that have been around for a while. That boy, when you hear them, they give you something. I listen to you guys that are doing your devotions. You know, John tonight at the mission. He'll give them something. I listen to you guys. You don't even know I listen to you when you're teaching your disciple. I have somebody record it, and I'll listen to you. There's depth there. You're not just giving the story. You're learning how to take the depth of God and paint a picture, a word picture with the words that establishes the truth that you want to give them. That just doesn't happen with three points in a poem. There's got to be depth to it. And many of you, many of you, we have a bunch of guys and gals here, gals too, that got depth to them. And we got a whole host of you that, that are on that way in your world that you want depth. You want it. I, I enjoy it on Thursday night when, you know, when I miss something or this or that. Man, there's guys out there that just get it. Or even even though after I say something, somebody will come back around and raise their hand and bring up a, a what I call a closure point. It's, I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, it's like trying to, I like a guy preaching, it's like listening to him, it's you're trying to write it all down, it's like trying to get a, get a drink of water out of a fire hose. Take your lips off. But good preachers, deep deep preachers doesn't happen but just preaching a lot of sermons. I know, the mindset is if you preach enough sermons, you'll turn into a good preacher. No, you'll just go through your life preaching a bunch more bad sermons. Preaching is an art form. You have to learn some things in doing it. But preaching demands a depth, good preaching. I ain't kidding you. Listen, if the depth of, of your heart and my heart is the oil, the Holy Spirit of God, because of the truth and the depth then the message that you and I preach out of the depth of our heart will simply be the dipstick to the oil level. And I'll be honest to tell you, most preachers are about three quarts low. But that's where it's at. How deep are we willing to go? How much depth are we willing to get into? Are we we satisfied just staying on the surface? Look at verse 4. Take away the dross from the silver, and there shall come forth a vessel for the finer. Well, doctrinally, we know this is the second coming of Christ. This is what he does when he comes back. We've seen it in many, many places in the Old Testament. But for you and for me, there's some key words here that are good words to study. The first one is dross. Now, dross are impurities. In gold, silver, you have what we call dross. Dross are the impurities. And when you want to purify gold or you want to purify silver, then you boil it or you put it under a fire. And what the fire does, the fire separates the real pure gold or silver from the impurity, the dross, and the dross comes to the surface. And so and that's exactly what God wants to do in your life. That's why you've got to have some trials in your life. That's why you've got to have some fire in your life. That's why you've got to have some things that don't always go right for you. It's those very things that we don't want in our life that God uses to take the dross to the surface so you can get rid of it. Then he says silver. He could have said gold. He could have said precious stones, which we know as people. We know that gold is the deity of Christ from the types. But he says he chose the word silver here. Because as you purify yourself and you purify the dross out of your life, the thing that's going to make that happen and make you pure every day is the more you understand what Christ did for you and the price he paid for you. I don't love God because of all the good things he's done for me. And he's done some tremendously wonderful things that I'll never be able to thank him for. I don't, I don't love God because of the Bible that he gave me. Though I love the Bible that he gave me and I do love him for giving it to me. But that's not the main reason. The main reason in my heart for everything that I have with God is goes back to the day He hung on that cross for me and paid my price. Because without that, none of it else makes any difference. And every day of your life and my life, day by day, we should have a better appreciation and a better understanding of what He's done for us. When you do that, the next word is vessels. When you do that, the vessels will be our bodies, a choice vessel for God's work. Bible talks about in Romans chapter 9 verses 21 through 23 and 2 Timothy 2, 20 through 21 that God has vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. He wants you and I to be a chosen vessel of silver based on the redemption that we get purified that the dross comes off the top and that we become a vessel fit for the master's use. Then the fourth thing he says finer. That'll be the (coughs) Holy Spirit of God who will refine us and perfect us as we dig into God's mind. The word we have today is refinery, where they take the raw materials and refine it into gasoline for your car. What God does is He takes the raw materials in your life and my life, and through a refining process of getting rid of the dross, you understanding the silver, and you becoming a vessel, He refines you and perfects you for the work of God. That's how it works. Simply put, taking away the dross, perfecting you for the work of the ministry, 2 Timothy three sixteen, And the deeper you go into God's mind, the farther you get from the world. And the richer your life will be because the gold gets better. In your hymn book, I think it's 204, 207. There's a hymn there that is one of my favorites, and we've sing it many, many times familiar to everybody, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And it says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. That is putting the gross, the silver, and the vessels in the finer's hands. And he says, when you turn your eyes upon Jesus and you look full, not halfway, full in his wonderful face. He says, and the things of earth. Shall grow strangely dim. And the light of his glory and grace. You know why they grow strangely dim? Because you're getting down so deep that the light from this old world is not affecting you anymore. That's your problem. That's my problem. That's our problem. We ought to be so deep in the mind of God and the mind, gold mine that God has given us that the world we don't even know what's going on up there. An A bomb could hit it and take the whole place out. And you'd come up and you'd say, Wow, I wonder when this happened. You're so into what God has given you that you may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, the length, and the depth, and the height, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that ye might be filled with the fullness of God. That's what he wants for you and me. He wants us filled with the fullness of God. He wants a depth to us. The thing I like about so many of you, it doesn't matter Who comes in with what problem? Somebody can come in with a marital problem, a kid problem, or this problem. I can just about drop 85% of you into any scenario, in any situation, and you will read it, you'll understand it, and you'll know where to go in the Bible to fix it, and you'll begin to put a process together to walk them. They may not do it, but you'll begin to put the process together to get them out. You know how you do that? Depth. Digging in the gold mine. Finding those nuggets those chunks of gold that give you all the principles. That's why Hezekiah knew what he needed to do. He's looking at his nation and his country, and he says, man, we're in a mess. And he says, I, I, I want to get back with God. I fear God. I trust God. And he knew, he was smart enough to know that if he was going to find any answers to his nation's problem, he was going to have to go to the wisest man that ever lived. You know, he got his scribes around him, and he says, copy out the Proverbs of Solomon. That's where I'm going to start. And that's where we need to start, getting into that mine. Proverbs is the entrance to the mind and the mind of God. We'll hold up there. Let's